We're continuing our study this evening through the lives of the 12 apostles, and tonight we want to look at the apostle Philip. You know, in those lists of the 12 names, four different lists, and all four of them, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, in some order or another, are the first four, but in all four of those lists, Philip is the fifth name listed. He obviously plays a more minor role in the gospel accounts than those other four men that we've studied. But he is mentioned on several occasions, and so he does emerge as a distinct character to us. Philip was from Bethsaida, just like Andrew and Peter were. He probably grew up attending the same synagogue that they did. And based on the close relationship that Peter and Andrew had with the sons of Zebedee, we can imagine that it's just possible that Philip knew them, that he was acquainted with them too. And in fact, it's even more likely to think that if you flip over to John chapter 21, there's good reason to believe that Philip, along with Nathaniel and Thomas for that matter, were all of them fishermen. You take a look at this group that's going fishing after with Peter after Jesus' resurrection. John 21, verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the two sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together, and Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. The other two aren't named, but most likely we're talking here about Andrew and Philip, because those are always mentioned in the same context with those other men that we have named there. Uh, Nathanael particularly in Philip's case. That means that it's likely that these men were all close associates, that they were all co-workers, even before Jesus came into their lives. And that shows us what a, a close-knit group the apostles were. You know, here we have seven of them, more than half of them, all from the same little small region in Galilee, all of them probably involved in the same occupation, all of them who had known each other for years and been friends probably for their entire lives in some cases. So that reinforces to us the type of men that Jesus called to be his apostles. He didn't go out scouring the whole earth and look for the most qualified, the most talented, the most gifted men that he could find. He found here a group of guys that already knew each other, ordinary, unexceptional men, and he said, eh, these will do. What do we know about Philip's character in particular? The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, don't give us any details about him. They just have the name. It's from John's gospel that we have some stories involving Philip. And that's where everything we learn about his character emerges. And what we see from Philip indicates that he was a completely different type of man than those other four men that we've studied so far. Philip has been called the prudent, the matter-of-fact man. John MacArthur calls him the bean counter. Philip was a pragmatist before that word had even been invented. Putting together piecing together the different stories we see in John's gospel, it seems that Philip was that classic process person. I think we can call him that. In other words, he was, he was a facts and figures guy. He was by the book. 
Uh, those of you who've worked in any sort of office setting, a corporate environment, you've probably worked with a guy like Philip. He's the sort of killjoy that always makes sure you got the right cover sheet stapled to your TPS reports, that sort of thing. That's, you get that reference. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly who Philip is. He's the type of guy that always sees why you can't do something rather than trying to see a way that you can do that. And because of that focus, he often missed the bigger picture. There are four mentions of Philip in John's gospel account. We read about his call, John chapter 1. We read about the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. We read about some Greeks who come to visit Jesus in chapter 12. And then we read about what Philip says in the upper room on the last night of Jesus' life, John 14. We want to look through all of these stories briefly together this evening. So we first encounter Philip in John chapter 1. This is right after Andrew and John find Jesus. Verse 43 says to us there, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. It's fascinating to me that Jesus found Philip. You know, Andrew and John had found Jesus, and then Andrew had found Peter, and so Peter had gone to Jesus, and it doesn't say it explicitly, but we can imagine that James probably came to him in that very same way. At least John the Baptist had, had pointed them in Jesus' direction, and then they'd gone to him. But Jesus found Philip. He chose him from the outset. It's important to keep that in mind because a lot of what we're going to see tonight reflects pretty negatively on Philip, but this reminds us that from the beginning, Jesus saw something in Philip. For one thing, his heart is evident in how he responded. There in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Obviously, Philip had been studying the law and the prophets. Just like John, just like Andrew, Philip had been looking for the Messiah. He was waiting for him to come. And when Jesus approaches him and reveals himself to him, he decides immediately he's going to follow him. And not only that, Philip had the heart of a personal evangelist. The first thing he does is he goes and he tells his friend Nathaniel about this. Now, Nathaniel is skeptical. He says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel, you remember we read it a moment ago, Nathaniel's from Cana in Galilee. Cana was another little close town not too far away. It was probably a village even smaller than Nazareth was. And, you know, this is probably refre reflecting a little bit of a local rivalry here. Uh, maybe, you know, Cana and Nazareth played football every year, and Nathaniel didn't like him very much, that sort of thing. So, he's skeptical, but Philip is undeterred. He says, come and see. That is the essential method for spreading the gospel. Friendships, relationships provide the most fertile field there is for evangelism. Most people are not going to be one to Jesus because of arguments. And I don't mean fighting there, I mean logical arguments. Most people are not going to come to Jesus because you've laid out a convincing case and you've persuaded them that this is the way. That's true for most of us, too, really, if you think about it. Even if you grew up in the church, most of us 
became dedicated to Jesus, not because we were able to ferret our way through a maze of theological arguments, dogma. Most of us dedicated ourselves to Jesus because we saw him exhibited in someone else. Mother, father, grandparent, friend, whoever it may be in your particular case, someone who by their life convinced us that this is the way to live. Basically, they said, like Philip did, come and see. And even if they couldn't point us to him in the flesh the way Philip did to Nathaniel, we saw him living in them. Daniel Webster, uh, the great statesman and orator, was once asked what he thought the most persuasive argument was for the Christian faith. And he said, my aunt, who lives in the hills of New Hampshire. That's exactly what we're talking about here. And Philip reminds us of the power of friendships, of relationships in evangelism. Nathaniel was his friend. He wanted him to hear this good news. He wanted him to believe too. When Christ is introduced into a relationship, a friendship where there's already love and support, where that uh, trust already exists, the results can be tremendous. Now, it's good that we keep that in mind about Philip from the outset because, as I said, a lot of what we're going to see about him in the stories to follow is much less positive than that. Our next glimpse of him comes from John chapter 6 in the feeding of the 5,000. Now, if you were here when we talked about Andrew, we looked at this story in the context of his life, but let's look at this story through Philip's eyes. There's a tremendous crowd here. Verse 10 tells us that the number of men alone is about 5,000. So you add women, you add children to that. We could be talking about 10,000 people. We could be talking about somewhere even close to 20,000. Who knows? This is a, a big crowd here. And they're getting hungry. They're restless. These people need to eat. And so Jesus turns to Philip. In verse 5, Jesus lifts up his eyes, seeing the large crowd coming towards him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Why single Philip out? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. I think it's likely, you know, this is speculation, but I think it's likely that Philip is the administrator. He's the logistics man. You know, consider that we know for a fact Judas was the, the treasurer. Judas took care of the money. Well, it makes sense that you'd have someone in charge of logistics too, doesn't it? After all, we have not only the 12, but you have disciples beyond that who are following Jesus around on a regular basis. You've got to make arrangements for food, for supplies, for things like that, because they're constantly on the move in this itinerant ministry. So whether officially or unofficially, it seems like, Philip was that guy. But of course, Jesus, as it tells us here, he wasn't asking Philip this because he didn't have a plan. He isn't even really asking so much to know what Philip's thinking because, of course, he knows what Philip's thinking, but he wants Philip to reveal himself here. He wants to get it out in the open. And it's here that we see that administrative personality emerge. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough bread for each of them to get a little. Philip had already been crunching the numbers in his head. <laughs> He'd done the math. He'd probably started doing that when he saw this crowd moving in and saw that it was getting there late in the day. 
Huge crowd. They're going to be hungry. It's not like they could send them to the McDonald's location there on the Sea of Galilee. There's no place for them to go and eat. They have to do something for them. And he's already thought about the difficulty of the food supply here. You know, you can just sort of picture him based on his response, running these numbers. Well, let's see. Uh, one denarius is enough to buy a dozen loaves of bread. And maybe since we're buying in bulk, we can get a discount. And then if we break them all in half, and no, nope, it's just... It's not going to work. We don't have enough money to do it. From a purely human perspective, Philip was obviously right. But Philip, you go back to John chapter 2, Philip had been there in Cana in Galilee when Jesus had turned water into wine. Philip had seen with his own eyes Jesus heal people. Philip knew what Jesus was capable of doing, and yet he sees this crowd and he feels overwhelmed, and he lapses into material thinking. And so he says, can't be done. There's nothing we can do. What he should have said, the response of faith, when Jesus says, what are we going to do? How are we going to buy bread for all these? He should have said, well, Lord, you take care of it. You feed them. I know you can handle this. Andrew seems to at least have a, a glimmer of this, an imperfect conception of it when he brings that boy with the loaves and the fishes to Jesus. But Philip needed to set aside his practical mind, these mundane concerns that he had, and to take hold of the potential of faith. He couldn't do that here. We find another insight into his character over in John chapter 12. Reading and beginning in verse 20. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. These Greeks are either what the book of Acts refers to as God-fearers, that is, Gentiles who hadn't converted to Judaism, but they're worshipers of God in a sense. They're, they're sort of on the periphery of Judaism. Maybe even they were full-blown proselytes, that is, they'd become converts to Judaism. At any rate, these Greeks are very interested in Jesus. Maybe they come to Philip because he has a Greek name. That name is a, a Greek name, means lover of horses and it could be that Philip was even a Hellenistic Jew, that is, a Greek-speaking Jew. There were lots of those in Galilee, so maybe they came to him for that reason. Or maybe they heard, as we speculated, that Philip was the administrator, and they thought, well, he'd be the one to be a go-between and arrange a meeting. I, I don't know exactly why. But what we do know from all the Gospel accounts, Greeks, Gentiles, coming to Jesus, that was highly irregular. And it seems that Philip, with that by-the-book approach that he has, he's, he's stumped. He doesn't know what to do. Hadn't Jesus himself said, for instance, that his mission was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? What are we supposed to do about these Greeks that come here? You, you know, you can almost see uh, Philip sort of flipping through. There, there's nothing in the manual about this. <laughs> I don't know what to do in this situation. It's unprecedented. But Philip, remember, did have a good heart. And so he took him to Andrew. Remember, Andrew, he'll bring anybody to Jesus. Well, you know, I don't know what to do, but Andrew, he'll know what to do. And maybe that gives him some plausible deniability in case this is the wrong thing. I, I don't know if that's what he's thinking or not. But again, what we see is the, the purely practical 
is stunning Philip's vision. Jesus receives them, and of course Jesus would want to see these people. And if you read what he says in verses 20 through through 26 there, he talks about the time has come for him to be glorified. But in particular, verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor them. In short, he preaches the gospel to them. If anyone serves me, including these Greeks, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor them. Of course they're welcome here. So Philip did the right thing, ultimately, indirectly, the roundabout way of bringing them to Jesus. But he should have just done that right off. When they said that we, we want to see Jesus, he should have taken them right there himself immediately. Our final glimpse of Philip comes a short time later. John chapter 14. This is the scene in the upper room on the last night of Jesus' life, and he knows what's coming. He knows that arrest and trial and a beating and the cross await him. The training of the twelve is over, and yet their faith remains so immature and so weak. You piece together the different accounts, and they actually had another one of those fights about who was going to be the greatest there that very night. They're still not getting the message. That's what prompted Jesus to pick up that wash basin and that towel and to go in to wash their feet, to try to teach them the lesson one final time. But, you know, it seems like here at the end, many of his most important teachings still haven't sunk into them. Philip, in particular, seems to have not gotten the message, and the remark that we have recorded that he makes is as disappointing as anything that we see in the upper room. You remember Jesus tells them that he's going away. They're concerned about that, and so then he comforts them in, in words that we're all familiar with. John 14, beginning in verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me also. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Now, we know, and they should have gotten it in the sense that he's predicted his death repeatedly. He's telling them that it's coming. We know he's talking about going to the Father. And he's the way. That's how they follow. But they still don't get it. They're slow to catch on. And so Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus makes one of the most emphatic pronouncements in all of the gospel accounts. We know this. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's clear and emphatic language. We still quote that verse frequently because Jesus is unambiguous here. He's saying that he and the Father are one. This is a claim to deity here. And it's at this point that Philip speaks up. Verse number 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Show us the Father? 
How can Philip say that on the heels of what Jesus had just said? Was he listening? Has he been with him for three years now, day in and day out, and he, and he still doesn't realize who Jesus is? If he'd truly known Christ, he would have known the Father. And so Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? <laughs> what did Philip think had been going on all these years? It's almost hard to reconcile. How can a man who showed such faith there at the beginning, come and see, how can he show this sort of misunderstanding here at the end? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You, you notice what Jesus says there? Do you not believe? Believe! Believe me! For three years, Philip has seen God in the flesh. He's walked with him, he's eaten with him, he's listened to him, but his earthbound thinking, his preoccupation with the mundane, with the practical, with the things of this world, had shut him off from a full appreciation of that. Philip was a man of limited ability, a lot like the other disciples in their own particular ways. He was a man of weak faith. He was a man of imperfect understanding. He was a man who was focused on the things of this world. He was a man who saw all the problems rather than the possibilities. He was a man who was slow to understand, slow to trust, slow to see beyond the immediate circumstances. In other words, Philip was a lot like us. But thank God that he uses people like Philip. Lots of them. In fact, remember, he seeks out people like Philip, just like Jesus did there at the beginning. Tradition tells us, because we don't have any details about Philip recorded in the book of Acts, but tradition tells us that he was stoned to death in Asia Minor about eight years after James was killed. But that was only after multitudes had been converted because of his preaching. So Philip overcame those human tendencies that tended to drag down his faith. He's a wonderful example of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In spite of all those flaws Philip had, God took him and was able to use him to accomplish his purpose. God can take us, flaws and all, mold us, shape us, and use us to accomplish his purpose too, if we let him. So my encouragement to you tonight is, we're so much like Philip. May we all endeavor not to focus on this world, on the mundane, 
trust in our own wit and wisdom. Let's walk by faith, not by sight. Let's try to see those possibilities rather than the problems. Let's live that life of trust. Let's turn ourselves over completely to the Lord and allow Him to work in us and through us. If you're here tonight and you haven't been doing that, you need to make changes. You have the opportunity to make your need known while we stand, while we sing.